The scripture this morning is from Second Peter, chapter one, verses one through eleven. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be... For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the king, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is week two of Second Peter, and some of you were here last week, um, and you saw the first four verses. And one thing we, we said is that as we go through Second Peter, one thing I want to do is just kind of slow down and go through verse by verse and, and notice what we see. Notice what Peter has written us. Um, and so that's what we want to keep doing today. And, and at the beginning of Second Peter, there's this kind of this mini sermon that he gives before he launches into the purpose of his his writing. And so that's where we are this morning. Last week, we looked at uh, verses one through four, and we saw that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And that provision comes through us knowing him. So as we know him, we, we acquire all these things that we need. He, he delivers to us everything you need to follow Jesus, to live a godly life, comes through knowing him. And we saw that he's given us a unique vehicle to know him. And namely, that's his promises. He has given us promises so that we will know him. And there are two reasons that promises are unique. Uh, you remember we said first that a promise is only as good as the character of the person making the promise, right? A promise is kind of a, a test of character. If I keep my promise, I prove myself to be a trustworthy person. I prove myself to have good character. Um, and then the second reason is that it's, it has a future element. It requires that we trust now for something God's going to do in the future. Okay, so two unique things about promises. Um, and then I said that God gives us the Bible as in all the stories of what he's done in history, all the Old Testament stories of him being faithful to his people, and, and all the New Testament letters, and he gives us descriptions of his character and what he is like. And all of that is to the end that we will hear what he says and believe him. We will hear promises and we'll say, I can bank on that promise because I see the character of the one making the promise. In other words, the Bible is like God's credit report, and his bank records and his signed promissory note that he will deliver on the promises that he has made. 
And so we, we come to know him more fully as we test those things, as we prove them, as we live in light of those promises, as, um, as we often sing. I, I kicked myself this week because I was just kind of driving to work one morning and I heard, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus from uh, my brother's church in Atlanta. They, they have a hymns album. And so I listened to that and I heard this song and I just thought, oh my gosh, that's the perfect, perfect uh, hymn to represent what we talked about last week. Why didn't I remember that and quote it? So you get it this week. Um, and we, see, we sing often, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more.'" So you follow that. We, we prove his character by trusting him and watching him deliver on that. So that was last week. And, and then this week, I told you there's a paradox coming, okay? Um, there, there's going to be a, something we've got to work out. We've got to work through as we go through Second Peter. Um, and namely, that is, if my faith as a Christian is not in how good I am, not in what I do, but in the righteousness of Christ then why does it matter whether I'm good, whether I do good things, whether I live a holy life? Why does that matter if, as Mitch just reminded us, we are not saved by being good? We are not Christians because we do good. So if that's the case, then why does it matter whether we're good or not? That's a, an interesting paradox. And I just want to, just so we get terms straight here, I want to remind you, uh, maybe you were here last year when I preached a sermon on paradox, biblical paradox, um, and one of the things I did was I distinguished between a paradox and a contradiction. Okay, So a contradiction is obviously two things that cannot both be true. right? Two things that, that just can't be true no matter which way you spin them or how you hold them together. They butt against each other and they, they can't be reconciled. But a paradox is two things that maybe initially seem like they can't both be true. Hey, they seem to be contradictory, but as you get more information or as, as you examine them more closely, you start to realize, wait a minute, those aren't contradictory at all. They, they actually dovetail nicely together. They fit right together. Um, for example, if I, if I told you that I'm from Georgia and then later I told you I'm from Europe, right, you might initially think that can't be right. That's a contradiction. Unless you know the additional piece of information that Georgia is not just a state here, but it's a country in Europe, right? This is a very simple, trite, trivial example, but hopefully it, it clears it up for you. That's a paradox. If you, depending on how you take it, if you see Georgia and you think United States, and then I say I'm from Europe, you think that can't, those can't fit together. That can't both be true. But as you get more information or as you look at it more closely, you realize, wait a minute. Now, I believe, and, and there are a hundred reasons probably why I believe this, but one of them, and an important one, maybe the most important one, is that I've been there, I've tested it, I've beat it up, I've tried it. I believe the Bible is without contradiction, but I believe it's full of paradox. It's full of tension. It's full of things that, because we are finite human beings, we have to wrestle with and we have to understand, and, and we're going to see one of those today, um, but... But I believe, because I've gone through plenty of times in my life, as I talked about a few months ago when we, when we announced that we're going to go plant a church in Portland, um, 
there was a time just recently in the past year or so where I'm looking at Genesis and I'm just like, I don't understand how these things fit, to get, fit together. They seem to be a contradiction. But on reading, on studying, on praying more, looking at it, you realize, wait a minute, they dovetail nicely. They fit right together. It's not a contradiction. And I think we run across a lot of things that we've got to sort through. And God calls us to apply our minds, not just to glance at it and say, that can't be true. I'm going to move on to something else. No, to look at it and, and try to piece it together. He's given you reason. He's given you a mind for that. So that's where we are today. We're going to, what I want to do today is just kind of restate the paradox. What did we see last week that causes this paradox maybe in our minds um, and then just walk through like we did last week walk through the next four, five or six verses and see how Peter helps us reconcile this or or how do we handle this so so with that being said let's um, let's look at second Peter hopefully if you have your Bibles you can look at uh, verses 1 through 11 we're going to pause for just a second on verse 2 and then we're going to jump into 5 through 11. And so we see in verse 2 that Peter says that we have obtained an, a faith of equal standing with the apostles by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? We have obtained a faith by the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of us. Okay, now that, that is, this is a big statement, so take it in. That is the essence of biblical Christianity. Okay, that's the essence of Christianity, and that's what separates biblical Christianity from every other religion out there. Okay? All other major religions assert that you do your work, you live your life, you do whatever you're going to do, and at the end of your life, God will evaluate how well you did, and he'll either reward you or punish you, right, based on, that, on what you've done, um, which means your faith is not resting in the righteousness of God. Your faith is resting in your own ability to be righteous. Okay? Your faith rests in your ability to do good in order to show God, hey, look, look at all the good things I did. You've got to reward me. I did good. That's, that's not biblical Christianity. Because Peter says that we have a faith, not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as I said last week, just to recap, the foundation of biblical faith is not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. In other words, my hope and trust and confidence before God is not that I have done anything good, but that Christ has done everything good. Okay? I rest in that. Um, and it's because of his righteous life and his death that I have any hope at all. He took my sin that I might take his righteousness. First Corinthians, right? Where it says that God... Um, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We trade places. Christ takes on our sin. We take on his righteous record. And so that's the foundation of my faith. I hope it's the foundation of your faith. It's the foundation of all the apostles' faith. And, and all true believers who have ever lived, they hope not because they are righteous or they were righteous, but because Jesus is perfectly righteous. Do you wonder sometimes why we sing songs like we do? If, if, you, if you haven't been here often, that may be a weird song. A couple of those songs may be weird. Why do we sing a really happy song that says no one is good enough to save himself? Right? That's, that might make you feel a little weird. You know, no one is good enough to save himself. Or, or we sing, 
Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. We sing those things. We, we want to remember that because we know the third verse of Awake My Soul. The, the song that says no one is good enough to save himself also says, when I stand on the edges of Jordan with the saints and the angels beside, when I'm in heaven, when I am made perfect and I'm standing there among the saints and the angels, when my body is healed and the glory revealed, then still I can boast only Christ. I, I don't boast that I was good enough. I just look at Jesus and I say, thank you for taking my sin and giving me your righteousness. So that's why we sing those. That's why we sing songs like that. Because the essence of Christianity is that my acceptance before God, my salvation, is not based on me being a good person, but on Christ being a perfect person. And he died a death he didn't deserve in order to give me that perfection. So when I trust Christ, when, I, when God looks at me, he sees Christ's perfection, and he renders a verdict. Okay, God, God looks at Christ, and he renders a verdict on my behalf. He says, Michael Smith, you are innocent. You are not guilty. You are pure. You are perfect, regardless of what you've done. Because Christ was perfect, you are considered perfect. Okay, That's, We call that justification. right? We are made just. We are made righteous, declared righteous by God. I hope you get that. It's an important piece. Don't miss that one, okay? But that's the paradox. That's why we got to this paradox, because Peter is about to tell us that we need to be righteous. We need to have certain godly characteristics, certain practical righteous qualities. And so it begs the question, if I am truly counted righteous before God, not based on what I've done, but solely on the basis of Jesus and his righteousness, why does it matter if I live a godly life? Why does it matter if, if I'm holy? Or say it another way, why does that holiness matter if I can't trust it, if I can't depend on it to, to look good to God? Why does it matter? So hopefully Peter will help us answer that. And I think it's an important question because I have a lot of friends, maybe you have friends as well, who would say it doesn't. Your holiness doesn't matter. You trusted in Jesus. You're righteous because of him. And so it doesn't matter that you be righteous. In fact, if you make any kind of statement about, I don't know that Christians should live this way, or Christians should do this, or Christians should think this, they say, well, you're just living by law. You, you are not trusting Jesus. You're trying to be righteous of your own accord, right? They make statements like that. They call you a hypocrite. They call you a Pharisee because you care about how you live as a Christian and about how other Christians live. And so, so the question is, let's go to, the, let's go to the, the root source of what we believe. Let's go to the Bible and see what Peter says about this connection between being saved by Christ's righteousness but living a righteous life. So verses 5 through 11 is where we're going to focus today. So let me, let me just recap those for you. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's jump in right there. That's the paradox. That's what we've got to sort through today. And I think Peter gives us the answer here. Um, and, and I don't want to spoil the ending, but I think the answer comes almost immediately, right in the beginning of verse 5, because he says, for this very reason, make every effort. Okay, For what very reason? He says, um, he's telling us there that whatever he's about to say is rooted or it's grounded on verses 3 and 4. It's grounded on what you just read. And so... The answer is because God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And because we are becoming partakers of the divine nature, because we have escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For that reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and, and so on and so forth. So he says because of that, do something, do this. And, and as we see in verses 5 through 7, Paul, or Peter gives us a list of Christian virtues or Christian ethics. Okay, He gives us practical things. Um, and, and the list starts with faith and it ends with love. And sandwiched between those two, there are six character traits that we are encouraged to pursue. Okay, So virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, uh, godliness, brotherly affection. He says... Do these things, add these things to your faith. And I don't think his intention is to give us an exhaustive list of characteristics to live. Okay, right? Do you agree with that? He's not giving us an exhaustive list. For example, he doesn't mention joy. He doesn't mention peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. All these things that we know from Galatians are fruits of the Spirit. He doesn't mention any of that. Um, so I think he's just kind of saying, here's a, here's a direction. Here's some general headings, general categories for you to think about. And I don't think he's trying to give us a chronological list. Okay, He's not trying to say, um, lay down a layer of faith. And once you get that faith settled, then you can put virtue on top of that. And once you're established as a virtuous person, then you can worry about knowledge. And then once you're settled there, you can worry about all the other things. He's not, he's not giving us a chronological thing. I, I do think it's important the first and last items he mentions, we'll talk about in a second. But, but what I think he's really trying to say is that we escaped the corruption of the world and we are becoming partakers of the divine nature through faith in Jesus. But don't just stop there. Don't just say, okay, I trusted Jesus, I believed in Christ, and I'm saved based on his righteousness, so I'm good. I'm settled. It doesn't matter what I do now. But it's all taken care of. Peter says, no, no, no. Precisely because you have trusted in Christ, precisely because you, you rest in his righteousness and not your own, here's a whole list of things that you need to be working on, you need to be improving on, you need to grow in because you are saved by his righteousness. So you need to be virtuous, you need to be godly, you need to be steadfast, you need to have self-control. You need to grow in those things. And all of those things culminate in the supreme Christian virtue, which is love. Right? So I think, I think Peter's saying, okay, you're saved by faith. There's the first element in the list. 
says now, in, in fact, the New American Standard says, in your faith, supply virtue. Okay? In other words, I think what he's saying is you are saved because you trust in Christ, and out of that faith should flow all of these things that culminate in love, that make you a loving person, that make you a godly person, a self-controlled person. So you should, you should aspire to that. Notice what he doesn't do. Okay? He doesn't give a specific list of actions. Because you trusted in Christ's righteousness, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't run with girls that do. Right? He doesn't say that. He, he says you should become this kind of person. Because you have trusted in Christ, act like it. Okay? Um, the theological term for this idea is sanctification. And if you're kind of a, a classical music junkie like me, if you've ever listened to a, a mass, a Catholic mass, there's a section. There's the Gloria, and then there's the Credo, and then there's the Sanctus. And, and that portion of the mass is where they quote, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or they quote the Isaiah passage there. And, and so Sanctus, from that word, we get this idea of sanctification. You don't need to know that word, but you need to know the concept that that because we were justified, we were declared righteous on Christ's sacrifice, we must be sanctified. We must become holy as a result of that. Another way of saying it is growing in practical holiness is essential to the Christian life. It's essential. It's not optional. It's not, hey, good, you trusted in Christ. Now, here's a suggestion. Maybe think about this somewhere down the road. You, you might want to work on that. No, no. It's, it's essential to the Christian life. And Peter makes that clear in the next two verses. And so let's just look at verse 8. He gives us a positive way of saying it. And in verse 9, he gives us a negative way of saying it. So in verse 8, he says, If you have these qualities and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's... That's directly related to verse 3 that we saw last week. Okay, verse 3 says, God has given us everything we need for godly living through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says that the confirmation that you are growing in that knowledge is that you have these characteristics, that they are increasing. Or, or to say it the other way, as you know Jesus, the, the natural intention of knowing him happens. You bear fruit. Does that sound like anything else you've ever heard? Maybe from Jesus, right? That you will bear fruit. That, and, and that this fruit looks like virtue and godliness and self-control. So, so these practical things, these, these good, holy things that we live out, that's a confirmation of your knowledge of Christ through faith. Okay? So you say you know him, and if you really do, if you say you know him and you don't have these things, basically Peter is saying you're ineffective and unfruitful in that knowledge. It's not producing fruit, right? But he says if you practice these things, if these things are a part of your life, if you're growing, if they're increasing, then they render you, as the New American Standard says, they render you neither ineffective or unfruitful. In other words, that's, that's how, you, how that knowledge becomes fruitful. This is the fruit. That it creates in you a practical, moral, righteous, holy living. Um, but that has that begs the question. Okay, so you hear that? Settle on that for a second. 
And then it begs the question, so what if I'm not growing in those things? What if I'm not increasing in self-control and godliness and virtue and, and steadfastness? What if I'm not becoming a practically uh, godly person? What does it mean for me? Again, notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say that's fine. No big deal. It's just a suggestion. You're, you're okay. No, he doesn't let you off the hook, right? Peter, he doesn't say, hey, no big deal. Don't worry about it. Don't fret. Just whatever you do, don't feel guilty or regretful. Whatever you do, don't do that. No, he says, if you aren't growing in these things, you are blind. You have forgotten that God has cleansed you from your sins. Um, just a general Bible reading rule. In any biblical metaphor, being blind is not a good thing, right? Can you follow that? It's not good to be blind in the Bible. And so when Peter says, hey, if you're not growing in these things, if you're not practicing these things, you're blind, that's, that's a red flag. That should raise something in your mind. He's, he's being, in other words, he's being blood earnest here. He's not being flippant about this. He's saying it is absolutely essential that you grow in these things, that you live out what you say you believe. And so let me just recap everything we've seen so far because uh, verse 10 is a doozy, and it's, it's so good. I just want to make sure we're here. Peter says, precisely because you have become partakers of the divine nature through trusting the promises of God, you should make every effort to live that faith out in practical, moral, godly ways because it's that practical fruit that confirms your faith. And so that's basically what he says in verse 10. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your faith, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Did you catch that I intentionally misread that? He doesn't say, he doesn't say that you should be all the more diligent to confirm your faith, to make your faith sure. No, what does he say? He says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It should raise a question. Why does he do that? Why does he use that phrase instead of faith? Why does he say confirm your calling and election? And I think, first of all, he's just reminding us that this is anchored not in what we have done, but in what God has done. He's been talking for a couple of verses now very strongly about your action, the kind of person you should be in practical daily living but I think he uses this phrase to say, don't think because of that, that this is contingent on you. Okay? You are not just confirming a decision that you made. Right? You, you are, you're not confirming a faith that you conjured up out of somewhere inside of you. What you're doing, if you are a Christian, it is because God has called you. He has chosen you and he has called you to himself and he has set his favor on you. And Peter says, you need to hold yourself up to that light of God's calling and his election, and see if there's a watermark there. You know what a watermark is? If you hold a checkup, it's a, it's a sign of authenticity. It's a sign of validity. If there's no watermark, if you get a paper check, if there's no watermark, don't cash it, right? It's a warning to the bank. Hey, this check is not legit. Don't cash it if there's no watermark. Okay, because a watermark is an authenticator, and so Peter says, hold yourself up to the light and see if there's a watermark. See, is there any evidence in your life that you are an authentic Christian? And I think that's the first answer to the paradox. 
The answer is your holiness matters because it is the watermark. It is the sign of one who has truly been declared righteous by God. And and we see this everywhere. This is what James means when he says faith without works is dead. Right? Remember that fun? I think James is kind of sarcastic and I love that about him. He says, show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. What is that? That's just a little jab. It's like, hey, you can't show me. You can't show me your faith without works. Right? So he's saying the, the evidence that you really have faith is that you work. You do something. You have practical things that you can see. Or when Paul tells the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are really in the faith. Right? But what does he mean to examine? Don't lock yourself in a room and close your eyes and just say, do I feel good? No, he says, look at yourself, look at your life, look at your tendencies, look at how you're living, examine yourself and see if it's authentic. See if you're, you're living out what you say you believe. Or when Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. A good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree does not bear good fruit, right? So look at your fruit, look at the evidence in your life. Um, and, and I think the broader point of verse 10 where Paul says, confirm your calling and election and in all these verses, I think the broader point is don't be presumptuous. Okay? Don't, don't just assume I'm good. I got it together. I'm taken care of. Paul says confirm. I mean, Peter says confirm your calling and election. I've been reading so much Paul this week. I'm getting them confused, right? Um, it's okay. They believe the same thing. So we're good. But he says confirm your calling and election. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. And Peter says a key indicator is whether or not you are progressing in practical holiness. Whether or not you're, you're living out these qualities that he gave us. Self-control and steadfastness and godliness and virtue. Are you growing in those things? Um, but just I want to take one more minute and, and say that I think there's a deeper answer as well. There's a deeper connection. So that solves maybe the tension for you. You are saved by Christ's righteousness and not your own. But it matters that you live a holy, godly life. How do those things fit together? Well, because this is the evidence of this. Okay? This is, this is the root and these are the branches and fruit. Okay? So you've got to have both. So maybe that solves part of that, but I think there's a deeper connection, and I just want to spend a minute and go into it. Um, I think the connection between Christ's righteousness and our living and practical holiness is a two-way street. I think it goes both ways, and what I mean is holiness is the evidence that you have been declared righteous by God. If God declares you righteous, that will evidence itself in holiness, but being declared righteous by God is the root of all that holiness, um, let me give you these examples from the New Testament. Maybe that'll, it'll make it clear. We see this all over the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, where Paul tells the Corinthians, cleanse out the old leaven. Leaven is a picture in the Bible of sin, right? Of immorality or practical sin or any indwelling sin. And Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. How, did that, how does that work? You really are unleavened, so clean out the leaven. Get it out, right? Or um, we see it in Philippians where, where we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Okay, I'm supposed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who is working in me. How does that work? 
Or Paul says, this is my favorite, because this could send you just your head spinning if you just read it without context. Paul says in Romans 6, um, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Right? He tells you that's a command. You do something. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And two verses later, he says, for sin shall have no dominion over you. Sin shall not reign in your mortal body. How does that work? So you're telling me, you're making a, a statement that sin does, will not reign in my body, and then you're commanding me, don't let sin reign in your body. Um, how does that fit together? And, and here's what I think. God has called you and saved you, not because of anything good that you have ever done, and that very truth is what empowers and necessitates that you live a godly life. That's the power behind the action. Okay, Here's another way of saying it. Holiness matters. I've been emphasizing here. But don't ever trust it for righteousness. Don't ever look at the evidence of, of your holiness. Don't ever look at your practical holy living and say, here's why I'm good. Because I wasn't getting drunk last week at the lake. I was at church instead. Or because I gave money to a charity. I'm good. Don't ever look at that and say, that's my case. No, you always go back and you say, I'm not good. I can't, I mean, no one is good enough to save himself. I can't stand before God on my own merit, on my own charitable donations. We just saw they're great things and they're necessary. But I don't stand before God on that. I stand before God and say, Jesus took it. Jesus took my sin. He gave me his righteousness. That's my only case. That's what I plead. And then, if that's real, it will evidence itself in practical living. So, in other religions, just to keep this comparison a little longer, the verdict comes after the evidence, right? Just like in a court case, the logical way, you do good or bad, and then you receive punishment or reward. So your case is made by your life, and then based on the, the evidence, a verdict is rendered. But in the kingdom of God, it is the opposite. When you trust in Christ, God renders a verdict. He says, righteous. He doesn't look at your evidence. He renders a verdict. He says righteous. And then he tells you, go out and live that verdict every day. And it is by remembering that verdict that you are empowered to live it out. I'm going to speak to that a little bit more to kind of close us out. But there's one other. I told Kelly last night, I was laying down to, um, to go to sleep. And I just kind of sat up and I'm like, I didn't even talk about verse 11. I didn't even look at verse 11. Um, I got through 5 through 10, and we're supposed to, I'm supposed to be going 5 through 11 today. And 5 through 10, I have this neat little manuscript, and verse 11 is nowhere included. And so this morning, I woke up, and I was like, I've got to look at that. What, how does it fit? What, why does verse 11 matter? When I think it, there's a nice, neat end at verse 10, and I think the question Peter is answering is, what's at stake here? Look at verse 11. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord. This, this isn't just an issue of, of happy, productive living, right? It's not just, hey, you should live in a godly way because that's the way you're going to be the happiest. That's, God has specifically structured the universe so that you will be the most fulfilled if you obey the Bible and live this godly life. No, no. Eternal life is at stake in, in this, in how you live. Okay? That's a scary thing. Carl told me right before I came up here, he said, hey, man, just just do it and don't preach heresy. <laughs> okay? 
that's a good general encouragement when you're when you're preaching. Just hey, just don't preach heresy, and you're good. Um, so it's a scary thing for me to stand up here and say uh, that eternal life is at stake in how you live because I just spent all this time saying it's not because of how you live that you are justified. It's because of Christ's righteousness. But I just say I say it that way. Because I think there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. You can run off into the ditch on the right, or you can run off into the ditch on the left. Um, Some people say, hey, God has declared me righteous. That's how I'm righteous, so it doesn't matter what I do next. And then some people say, it doesn't matter what you believe. All we care about is that it makes you a productive, godly, good person. As long as what you believe makes you a good person, I don't care what it is that you believe. And Peter says, no, no, you can't divorce those two because it's not just an issue of this life. It's not just an issue of right now. Peter says, if God has truly called you and saved you on the basis of Christ's righteousness, there will be evidence. And if there's not evidence, you have reason to be concerned. Okay, that's it's it's the confirmation. And if the confirmation is not there, that should be a red flag for you. So it's. It's an important thing, he says, in this way, by being, by exercising faith in Christ, trusting in his righteousness, and that being authenticated by this life that you're living of fruit, of righteous fruit, in that way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord. So just remember, we trust in Christ. We never hold our deeds up before God and say, here's why I'm good. But if there are no deeds to hold up, be concerned. Because that's the watermark. That's the authenticator that you are truly in Christ. So, to end, what's, what if the case is, what if your situation is that you believe God has called you righteous, but you're not acting righteous? There's not that fruit. There's not that evidence. You don't see evidence of being called or, or of having any authentic faith in Jesus. There's, there's not these things growing up in your life, pointing you to Jesus and making you like him, what do you do? Well, I intentionally skipped over the second half of verse 9 because I think it's the answer. So did you see the end of verse 9? He says, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you get the implication here? The implication is, if you would remember that God has cleansed you from your former sins, you would not lack these things. Anybody who lacks these things has forgotten. But if you remember, you won't lack them. So what do you do if, if you don't see that evidence? If you fall short, if you, if you don't see this righteous fruit in your life, you've got to remember something or, or learn something for the first time. You've got to remember that God saves you without regard to your righteousness and then you trust in that. You say, I, I don't see fruit in my life. But even if I did, it wouldn't be enough to save me. Jesus, I trust in you. Make me righteous. Declare me righteous and make that happen in my life. And so you claim that verdict of righteous based on what Christ has done and not what you have done. And you fight to live that evidence out of that verdict that has already been rendered. That's that's what you do. And and that's every day, okay? That's every day of the Christian life. If you ever forget that, if you ever turn and say, look, I've got a good track record now. Look at my track record. 
You're forgetting. You're, you're getting nearsighted. Your eyes are going dim, right? And we're going to see in, in chapter 2, there are people who initially look like they've got it. And Peter says, no, those guys are not authentic. They're not going to make it. They're not going to last to the end. They're not going to persevere. They're false. Because that, that evidence is not what... That's, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I just get excited. and I'm trying to preach the sermon from, for two weeks from now. So I'm just going to stop right there. We're going to cut that off. Um, but I'm going to say, live that verdict out. Okay? You go. You don't ever trust in your track record and your deeds. And when you do that, Peter says, nope, that's false. Not authentic. Not good. You, that's not the basis of your righteousness. You always trust in Christ's righteousness. But if you're truly in Christ, that evidence will be there. And so if it's not, red flag. And you need to go back to it and say, I don't know what, what's wrong, but I trust in this. I trust that Christ is righteous for me. God, make that true in my life. That makes sense? So that's the paradox. That's how we put it together. Your holiness is the fruit and the root of that tree where all the life comes from. All the power for the fruit comes from Jesus Christ being righteous on your behalf. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. No one is good enough to save himself. But, but even when I experience that, I only boast Christ. I only boast the root. So let me pray for us. Father, make that true in our lives. Give us that root. Um, Father, some of us are are very good at, at actively doing that. Of our own willpower, we can do good things. And Father, um, thank you. Thank you that there are good deeds in the world and there are people who, who do things to make the world a better place. But Father, help us to see the necessary, the essential connection that ultimate good only comes from that root of righteousness that Jesus has given us. And I pray that we would rest in that. We would depend on that. That we would every morning wake up and remember, you have declared us righteous. If our faith is in Jesus Christ, we are righteous on his account. And I pray that out of that there would be fruit. There would be evidence. Make us steadfast people, Father. Make us self-controlled people. Make us godly people and virtuous people. May we be May we be lights, as John Piper says. May we be lights that are fueled by the generator of your righteousness. And so that we shine and people see and they know Jesus Christ is good because I see this guy's life. I see this lady's life. So, Father, make that true for us. And may we never depend on our own deeds. May we never depend on our own goodness to be righteous. But may we look at it and be confirmed in our hearts that we are authentic children of God because we have the evidence, we have the fruit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.